My father is a man who anticipates things. And working alongside him is always interesting because he's not simply thinking about the job that he's doing because that might be a temporary job or it might be a job that will need at some stage a repair or it might be a job that somebody else will have to come to. And so he starts to put things in place before he starts this job for what comes next. And one of those things that we put in place at one stage when we were uh, putting a roof on part of our house was a, a beam in a different place to carry part of the, the roof in case we should ever need to put in a hoist or a vertical lift that would allow mum, if she were in a wheelchair, to go straight up to the room above. All the preparations were put in place long before we had reached that point. And there's something of that here in this passage We see that that's the way that God works. The Old Testament priests were God's temporary and preparatory work. And he had put something in place even before then. He had put something in place that reached over that to give an indicator that he had something better in store. And we might wonder at the relevance of this whole passage for us, but the relevance and the whole point of these sections is to show us what God was always building towards and to show us the completeness of what Jesus has done by contrasting it to the incompleteness of any other way and particularly the previous ways that even God had put in place. And those previous ways find parallels in today's work because we are always trying to add to Jesus' sacrifice, whether officially through other religions, or unofficially through our own efforts. And so this passage has relevance for us. And we live in a country that has placed great stock in its priests as those who pray for the people and those who offer masses and sacrifices on behalf of the people. And as you look and read this passage, you see that God has a richer, better way than that. So this passage has enduring relevance for us. And there's three things that we're going to see this evening. First of all, the clue to the perfect priest. The clue to the perfect priest. Put yourself in the sandals of these Christians for 1,500 years. They and their people have had priests. They have had high priests. They have had the tabernacle and then they've had the temples. And all along the way there were sacrifices. The sacrifices even went back before Moses, back even to Eden. There's a long history and heritage. And they went up to the temple three times a year. And they saw the daily sacrifice. And they took part in the great festivals. And there were none greater than the Day of Atonement. What a spectacle. The high priest entering into the temple. The people around about knowing that he is going into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice that will be sprinkled on the mercy seat. The only day in the year when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. And there's that moment of waiting. Will he come out again? Or will God have, have struck him down? You can imagine a father 
saying to his son as, as the high priest appears again out through the door of the temple, there you go, son. That's how you know God has forgiven us. See it. See the priest. Then the priest would go and he would take, he had gone in with the blood of uh, the bull and then the blood of the goat. And then he would come and he would take that animal and he would sacrifice it on the altar so that the people could see that the price had been paid. And the father might say to the son, see it and smell it. Now you know you're forgiven. The incense, the smell of roasting meat, the high priest now in his full regalia, the trumpet sounding, a feast for the senses, all of it telling you forgiveness has been granted. The father says to his son, my boy, do you believe? Do you trust in what God is doing here? And the son says, yes, yes, Abba, yes, Father. Father says with tears in his eyes, then, then my son, you're forgiven too. That's so tangible. You can see it. You can smell it. You can even nearly taste it. Forgiveness. And it's so repeatable. In the next year, they would come back and the burden of sins they would see being removed in these sacrifices. And maybe there would be a special trip to the temple during the year for some other failure in your life. And sacrifice would be offered and the priest would assure you that you were forgiven. And now, there's some teacher is saying that Jesus has superseded all of that. And it seemed very appealing for a while. But now you're beginning to miss the familiar sights and sounds and smell and the consoling presence of the priest and the high priest and the sacrifice. And maybe, maybe we should just go back to the old days and the old ways. And as for what the author has said so far, yes, you could understand that Jesus makes a very human and a very compassionate high priest. But he's absent. But not only is he absent, are we really going to ditch what we've done for 1,500 years? Are we going to set it aside? Would it not be better to stick with what we know? What our people have done for centuries? How can we have a new and superior high priest? This Jesus wasn't even from the right tribe, the priestly tribe. And so our author anticipates these questions and this experience and has a brilliant answer. His answer reaches deep into the Old Testament to a figure who's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. We read of him in Genesis 14. And then, a full millennia later, a thousand years later, he's mentioned again once in Psalm 110. And now you think to yourself, hold on, he's building an argument on two mentions. That's a bit tenuous. But let's follow his argument. Because if all this Melchizedek did was appear in Genesis as a fleeting figure, it might be wrong to build such a case on him. But God himself brings Melchizedek back to the consciousness of the people in Psalm 110. And God says that that brief appearance had a mammoth significance. There is going to be somebody 
greater than David who will come and who will be a victorious king but also a priest in the order of Melchizedek. God said it. And more than that, he took an oath when he said this. And if God says it, well, that's a game changer. This isn't some misuse of history. And the author's point is that long before the sacrificial system was introduced with priests from the tribe of Levi, there was a clue, a clue in the history of God's people and highlighted by God himself to the fact that a different priest, a forever priest, a final priest, would come. Someone who outranked the whole Levitical system. And so we're introduced to Melchizedek, the priest and king of Jerusalem, or Salem, as it was called. We read in Genesis 14, Abraham had gone to war and he'd come back via Salem where Melchizedek was a priest of God. And Abraham gives a tenth of his takings in thankfulness to God to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek brings food and a blessing from God to Abraham. And that's it. That's it. But our author draws out three important ways that Melchizedek signposts, points forward to Christ. Three important ways. First of all, Melchizedek signposts Christ's role or Christ's double role. Melchizedek signposts Christ's double role. If you're wanting, Melchizedek's going to appear a few times. If you're taking notes, MZ. We read, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He's got a double role. In drawing attention to this, the author is drawing attention to his status as both king and priest. It was an unusual combination for God's people. They were nearly always kept separate. And in fact, any king that tried to take on the priestly role found himself in trouble in the Old Testament. They were two different tasks. The king represented God to the people. The priest represented the people to God. But here was one who did both, a priest king. And his name's King of Righteousness, Melchizedek. That's what his name means. And he was the King of Salem. Salem means peace. He's the King of Peace. They point forward to Jesus Christ, who'll be both king and priest, the utterly righteous one who brings peace to us. So Melchizedek is the priest king who signposts Christ's rule. He's the priest king. But then he signposts, Melchizedek signposts Christ's eternity. Look at verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And we've got all sorts of questions. What do you mean? Are you saying that Melchizedek didn't have a mum or a dad? That he didn't die? Was Melchizedek Jesus? I don't think the author is making a point about, in a sense, Melchizedek himself. He's making a point about how the Holy Spirit has chosen to record Melchizedek in Scripture. 
and is uniquely recorded. The book of Genesis is famous for its family trees. It's famous for them. These are the generations of. That's what divides the book up. And then we keep reading about the death of people. But we have Melchizedek. And we're not told where he came from. We're not told anything about who his mother and father were, who his grandparents were, who his ancestors were. And we're not told anything about his death. He appears suddenly in the page of Scripture and he appears as a priest. And that's the last we know of him. He's a priest. He's still a priest. And the author says, it's as if he's saying as far as the picture is and as far as the Holy Spirit's concerned, he's a priest forever. It might seem an odd way of arguing to us, but he's, he's taking his, his points from how the Holy Spirit has painted a portrait. And he's saying, this portrait is painted in such a way to point you forward to someone, to some priest who would come, who would be, as Micah would put it, whose origins were of old. Whose origins were of old, Micah says. Someone without beginning of days or end of life. See how Melchizedek, the way he's recorded in Scripture, points forward to someone, a priest king, who doesn't have a beginning and who doesn't have an end. That's who they were to be looking for. God promised that the Messiah would be like that. Then, thirdly, Melchizedek signposts Christ's superiority. Remember, they're thinking that the priests that came through the tribe of Levi the descendants of Abraham, where they couldn't be surpassed. Israel had this system, and that was it. God had given it, and it couldn't be superseded. The writer says, hold on. There's a clue. The very first book of the Torah. A clue. It says in verse 4, just think how great he was. And then he almost unleashes his nuclear bomb. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Wow. Even Abraham did this. And Abraham's not a private individual in this. He is the father of the nation. He is described here as the one who received the covenant promise. And Abraham gives the tithe to Melchizedek. And not only that, but Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And the author says that it's the the greater who blesses the lesser. And that's a point that we see over and over again in in Genesis. And there's that wonderful moment where Jacob blesses Pharaoh. You know, and there's the, the most powerful leader in the world at that time being blessed by this nomadic shepherd. But yet the Jewish people understood, no, that is one of God's people with the covenant promise and the greater is blessing the lesser in that case. And here it is again. And so here is Melchizedek, the priest king, who blesses Abraham, the father of God's people, who receives gifts of, as it were, homage from Abraham. Well, Melchizedek must be the superior to Abraham and Abraham's descendants, Levi, and the Priests that came from Levi, who came from Abraham. Melchizedek signposts that there's a priesthood of God that is far superior to any 
human priesthood, even those from the tribe of Levi. So here's the clue. Here's the clue that God has given to a perfect priest. Now we might wonder what this has to do with us. But even these points, seemingly obscure as they are, show us that it was God's great plan not for us to relate to him by any endless series of human priests, but his plan that he had flagged up from the beginning was that there would be a singular one, a forever priest, one who would have no beginning of days and no end of life. The clue to the perfect priest. Secondly, the need for a perfect priest. The need for a perfect priest. Human beings simply can't cut it. We're not able, whether religious priests or whether ourselves trying to be our own priests, trying to relate to God through our own actions, we can't do it. We need a perfect priest. And there's at least three reasons given here. First of all, we see that the priesthood system didn't work. We're looking particularly at verse 11 and following here. Look at what he says. Now, we're not going to go into all the details of this. You'll have many more questions from the passage and we'll answer tonight. But look what he says. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? God said, I'm going to send another priest. Well, why? If perfection could come about this way, it simply didn't work. Then look at verse 18 and 19. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Wow! Here is the Holy Spirit saying through this author that the whole system that was set up in the Old Testament was weak and useless. It's not that God had a trial run and thought, well, you know, that's not quite working. All of that was to to give little pictures and it's like a simple ABC book this is how it's going to work but this isn't going to work this way itself we're going to need to take you by baby steps towards the Messiah but the the baby steps the the basic ABCs were simply didn't work it couldn't make people perfect it was weak and useless and it was set aside or a better way of translating that it was cancelled It was nulled. It was voided, this series of human priests. In a sense, the Old Testament priesthood was like a designer's prototype, a little wooden model that allows him to see the moving parts, but it actually doesn't do what it's meant to do. It's the early design stage, and it it, it gets binned along the way because it doesn't actually work, but you do learn a lot from it. So with the Old Testament priests. But the system didn't work. It was there to teach us and to point. But it couldn't give salvation. And if it could, why did God ever mention this coming priest who would come from a different order? The order of Melchizedek and who would come with a whole new power. Verse 16 says, with an indestructible life. There's why he's a forever priest. Because you can't kill him. You can't keep him down. He's going to rise from the dead. And God didn't simply mention it. He underlined it and declared it with an oath. 
There's the first point of failure. The system didn't work. The second reason priests are a perfect priest is needed is that priests, the priests that there were, were sinful. Look at verse 27. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of all the people. What a telling statement. The ones who represented the people to God were themselves sinners. They had no righteousness. The whole point of the priest was to be the one who brought the people close to God, who went in and stood in God's presence for the people. But how could he do that if in himself there is a barrier? How can he bring people close to God if there is a barrier to God in himself? If there's something about the priest where God would turn away from. His eyes are too pure as to behold evil. So how can the priest bring us to God if there's a barrier between him and God? The priests were sinners. And thirdly, the priests were mortal. They died. The Old Testament priests and any human priests die. Place yourself in a village in Israel and there's the, one of the Levitical priests lives there when he's not on duty in Jerusalem. And you get to know him and he, he prays for you. And he understands you. And he knows your circumstances. And he's even faced some of the same temptations as you. And you identify with him. And he makes you feel close to God. And then he dies. And where are you? Oh, there's another priest who lives in the village down the road, but... You feel alone and disconnected from God. There's a flaw in the system. The one who's meant to represent you to God can die. We need a different sort of a priest. A different sort of a high priest. A better one who's always there for us. Who isn't flawed like us and yet understands us. Is able to sympathize with us. Has been tested in every way just as we are yet is without sin. Where do you find one of those? You see what the author's building to? That brings us to our third point. Jesus is the perfect priest. Oh, look at how he's built towards it. And we come to verse 23. Neither may there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing on office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. If there's one phrase to take away from tonight, I think that's it. You might want to take away, therefore, he is able to save completely or because he always lives to intercede for us, but such a high priest meets our need. What a magnificent assurance. We have a perfect priest. Here he is. Such a one meets our need. The phrase means fits our need exactly. You know that moment when maybe you're, you're shopping for an item of clothing and you've tried 400 items and then you find the one that's just right. Perfect. It fits perfectly. It looks right. Well, that's A trivial illustration of the magnificence of what the author is saying here. 
The author has been building to this moment and he's showing us how perfect Jesus is. And he's only showing us at this point how perfect he is in his person. He's got whole chapters to tell us how perfect he is in his work. But note our high priest. We're going to finish with five quick things that you'll need to take away and and look at and, and think over. Jesus is better because he is permanent. Jesus is better because he is permanent. Look at verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Seven times in the passage, from the last line of chapter 6, we're either told he is a priest forever, or he is permanent, or he has an indestructible life. Seven times the idea is mentioned. It's like a drumbeat. He's permanent. There have been hundreds, hundreds of high priests since Aaron. And death had put an end to each one of them and their work. There was none you could rely on being there for you. But this one, your Jesus, is indestructible. Nothing will ever take him away from you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you because he is indestructible. He is permanent. He won't be moved to another parish. The world is his parish and his people are his people and his life is indestructible. Jesus is better, secondly, because he is effective. He is effective. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Remember what the writer had said. The system wasn't perfect. It was weak and it was useless. But Jesus, he can save. Not slightly, not partially, not mostly, but completely. Those who come to God through him, he is able to save completely. You know, remember a man asked me once, He said, answer me this, is God able to save me? And I said, yes, my friend, he is. And he said, no, I don't think he is. And I said, I can assure you that he can. And he said, no, but you don't know what I've done. But I do know what Jesus has done. And he's able to save completely. He's able to save to the uttermost. There is nothing that can stop him. There is no sin too bad. And it's not just past salvation that we're thinking of. It's not just that he's able to pay the penalty, but isn't our great concern as as Christians that will we make it? Will we keep on following? I'm going to foul up. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to fall into sin. Is, Is he able to finish the good work that he's begun? Oh, he's able to save completely. There is no part of your life that will not be made new and clean. There is no part of your life that he cannot reach into and help you out of. He is able to save completely. We often think of salvation being tied to the penalty of our sin. But salvation is also about that ongoing battle with the power of sin in our lives. And are we doomed to wrestle with things and not triumph over them forever and ever? No. No. He is able to save. 
He is able to save. What a message that we've got. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with. He is able to save. Jesus is better. One writer says, His power has no limits and His life has no end. That's our priest. That's our Jesus. And Jesus is better in third place because He's always at work for you. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. There's where His permanence and his salvation find their, their meeting point, as it were. What's he doing with his forever life? He's praying. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. Why will you make it? Because your priest is praying. That was the priest's job. Part of it was to pray for the people. The problem was that he died and new ones took their place. And they didn't know you. You know, the rabbis even taught that angels prayed for the people and made intercession for them. Who wouldn't want to have an angel praying for them? It sounds pretty impressive. But we have a high priest who has an indestructible life, who is the Son of God, who is seated on the throne, and he prays for us. Would you trade that in for a human priest or a saint or an angel? Jesus is better No angel had first-hand experience of human life or temptation. No saint knows what you've been going through, but Jesus does. There is a high priest who meets your need perfectly. And he prays for you. He prays for you. We love it when a fellow human being says, I'll pray for you. That awareness that we're not facing this on our own. And maybe even especially if it's someone who's been through the same sort of trial says, I'll pray for you. Our high priest has been tempted and tested in every way as we are. And he lives to intercede for us. Do you think you could make it to the end of Jesus who's praying for you? Fourthly, Jesus is better because he is sinless. Verse 26 and 27, such a high priest truly meets our need. He's holy, he's blameless, he's pure, he's set apart from sinners. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. The priests were meant to lead exemplary lives. But even the Day of Atonement, that small boy would see the high priest going into the Holy of Holies twice. First, for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. When I was reading this verse, I thought to myself, how often does a, a priest go to confession? And I looked it up, and I, the answer on the internet was from another priest. He says, well, they should go regularly. And then he said, at a weekly audience in November 2013, Pope Francis revealed that he receives the sacrament of penance every two weeks. Every two weeks, the Pope goes to confession. And we have a high priest who is holy and blameless and pure, set apart from sinners. One who is able to stand before God for us, where there's no barrier between him and God. There's nothing that he never 
ever has to go away and deal with before he could represent you before God. He's there representing you before God. Jesus is better. And the fifth one, Jesus is better because his sacrifice is final. Verse 27, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Look at the contrast earlier. It says day after day they offer sacrifices once for all. And we'll come back to this in Hebrews. This perfect once for all sacrifice that would pay the price for sin forever. That's the sort of priest we need. Not somebody that, as it were, we, who needs to keep offering a sacrifice for us and saying, I'll say a mass for the repose of your soul. We don't need that. We have a high priest who has offered one sacrifice for all time. We have the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace as our high priest forever. See where that puts us? What confidence it gives us. What peace it gives us. What assurance it gives us. As we grasp this, it'll help us to be a witness to our culture and to those around us. Jesus is not a bolt-on to the old system. He radically and utterly replaces it. We don't need priests praying for us or sacrificing for us or saints or angels praying for us. We have got Jesus. And he outranks them all. And does it not give us great confidence as we seek to live each day? The past is dealt with by the sacrifice of the priest. And the present is bearable by the prayers of our high priest. We can be confident as we face this week because our Jesus is praying for us. We have a high priest who meets our needs. Amen. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Oh Lord God, how it thrills our hearts to see our magnificent Saviour set out in all His richness. And yet, as we hear all these words, we have an echo of situations that are repeated in every village and every town in Ireland. And our hearts are, are grieved that there are people who look to a human being, even a human being who tries to sort of bolt on his work to Jesus' work and to be a priest. And people look to them and our hearts are grieved because no human being could ever, ever do All we bring when we try to join ourselves to Jesus in that way is we bring our failure and we we ruin His perfect work. And O Lord God, we are so thankful that we have a high priest and we long for those around us to see this perfect high priest that would be their high priest who would offer a forever sacrifice and who would intercede for them forever. 
And Lord God, we we pray that you'd help us to delight in such a high priest, to have confidence in his work and to know that as we live for him, he is praying for us. Father, we ask that you would use us to be a witness to the wonderful, winsome work of our glorious high priest, that others would see him and that they would leave the weak and the useless and the imperfect behind. And they would come to that which is full and free and final. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.